Hello, and welcome back to Healthcare Super Teams. I'm Haru Okuda. In our inaugural series on healthcare super teams, I spoke with experts in the science of teamwork, the CEO of the Nestle Corporation, the conducting fellow of the New World Symphony, and even a lead NASA scientist who specializes in creating teams for space travel in order to learn how extraordinary groups come together to create super teams. One common theme that all of our guests spoke on is how effective teamwork and communication is critical to the success of high-functioning organizations. In our most recent series, I examined healthcare super teams more closely, but through the lens of individuals, specifically individuals from diverse backgrounds in race, gender identity, and culture to understand the impact of racism and bias within healthcare and its effect on individuals as well as on teams. In preparation for our upcoming series, our team thought hard about the current challenges faced by our healthcare workers due to the pandemic. We wanted to dedicate a series on how we can keep our super teams healthy. A survey by Medscape in 2022 reported 42% of physicians were burned out, women greater than men, and 21 indicated they were depressed. A 2021 study in the Journal of American Medical Association found 31% of nurses were leaving their jobs due to burnout. In this season, we will be interviewing experts in mental health and wellness and discussing burnout within healthcare and its effect on individuals as well as on teams. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Kosilik, Assistant Professor in the Department of Mental Health Law and Policy and Faculty Affiliate with the Louis De La Parte Mental Health Institute at the University of South Florida. Dr. Kosilik's research is focused on mental illness and psychiatric disability with a special interest in social justice issues and stigma. She directs the Stigma Action Research Lab, which is conducting community-engaging research in the area of stigma reduction with special emphasis on the stigma surrounding behavioral health conditions. In addition, Dr. Kosilik is also involved in an ongoing partnership with This Is My Brave, a 501c3 dedicated to ending mental illness stigma through storytelling. Dr. Kosilik, welcome to Healthcare Super Teams. Thank you so much for having me. So just very excited for you to be joining us today. Um, definitely an area, stigma is such an important area especially in healthcare. And uh, in this season's inaugural episode, I interviewed Dr. Elizabeth Harry, Senior Medical Director of Wellbeing at UC Health. And she stated that in 2019, the Massachusetts Medical Society and Harvard School of Public Health declared physician burnout a public health crisis. In the same year, the National Academies of Medicine released their landmark report on physician burnout and emphasized that this was a systemic issue that required systematic changes. Then COVID-19 hits, and what was interesting to me was that the burnout rates really didn't change, but now in addition, uh, depression, anxiety, and su suicidal ideation uh, increase in our physicians. And I thought she summed it up nicely when she said that before we had an occupational hazard crisis, and now we have both a mental health crisis on top of an occupational health crisis. So my first question to you is, are you surprised to hear about the issues of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideations facing physicians and other healthcare providers since the pandemic? And um, why do you think that is? Thank you for that question. It's a really important one. Um, and I would say, unfortunately, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, we've seen 
uh, we've seen two things really in the general population, mm-hmm. and that is since COVID, um, worsening of existing mental health conditions, mm-hmm. and then also the emergence of new mental health conditions. And so it doesn't surprise me that we would be seeing something similar, maybe even more exacerbated in our healthcare provider community due to the stressors that they faced in helping us to make it through the pandemic. Mm. Uh, you know, looking at the literature on the mental health of physicians prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I'm saying mental health, let's just look at suicide rates for an example. There was a study conducted in 2004, which was actually a meta-analysis. So combining all the studies that have been done on this topic. And this particular study, again, back in 2004, was looking at suicide rates among physicians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what they found is overall, uh, male physicians were about 1.4 times um, more likely to die by suicide than members of the general population. And female physicians were 2.3 times more likely to die by suicide. So really, really um, at-risk group of folks. Um, And then if you look at research that's happened since COVID Mm -hmm. um, hit, So there was a 2021 study that looked at the psychological distress of physicians Mm mid-pandemic at this point and found that nearly half of the healthcare workers that were surveyed were experiencing serious psychiatric symptoms, including suicidal ideation, uh, and that, you know, COVID was clearly part of the, the reason for this elevated levels of distress. Yeah. I, I, um, as an emergency physician, I, I definitely, you know, speaking with many of my colleagues during the pandemic, um, especially pre-vaccine, there was a lot of anxiety, um, fear. I trained up in New York. So the, the one hospital that was in the news that got really hit hard, Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, um, is where I trained and I spoke with my colleagues. And early on, we had a, a nurse pass from COVID. I mean, it was a, a really, really difficult time. And to that note, I remember early in the pandemic, um, we lost a frontline emergency medicine doctor to suicide, Dr. Lorna Breen, who was the medical director of the emergency department at New York Presbyterian Hospital. And it really sent shockwaves through our emergency medicine community. The, the one positive that came from that tragedy is that now we have this newly signed Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, which was signed earlier uh, this year. Uh, to prov- provide grants for programs that offer behavioral health services for frontline healthcare workers and encourages them to seek assistance when needed. But you know, it just kind of maybe digging in a little bit into you know the why the anxiety, why the suicide rates, and uh, because of COVID has you know made it worse. And then you know if you could talk to us about mental illness and what prevents folks from trying to get help and 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 seeking help uh, for their depression, anxiety, and and suicidal ideations. Yeah. Uh, well, first, you know, thank you for speaking about Dr. Breen. That was a huge loss, um, and unfortunately, was not is not the only medical provider that we've lost to mm-hmm. suicide. Um, as you just heard, you know, rates are pretty high in this population, um, and a big part of it is because there's so much stigma. In mm-hmm. fact, I would say heightened stigma in the medical community around treatment seeking. You know, suicide is not synonymous with the experience of mental illness. So you mm-hmm. can experience psychiatric distress and not die by suicide, clearly. Right. Um, but a big part of the equation there is um, willingness to engage with evidence-based practices that are meant to help manage your symptoms. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and due to stigma, largely people avoid those treatments. And this happens, you know, with the general population, mm. but it's it's definitely heightened in the medical provider community for a variety of reasons. So you asked about stigma and what is stigma mm-hmm. really? Um, so I use a social cognitive model when I talk about stigma. Uh, and it's comprised of, it's a process that's comprised of three separate constructs. Mm-hmm. One of them are stereotypes. So those are our beliefs that we hold about a group of people. If, and we're, if we're talking about mental illness here, that would be people living with mental health, health conditions. So there's a bunch of common stereotypes surrounding mental illness. Um, one that I think really probably impacts the medical provider community is this belief about incompetence. So Mm. the general public tends to think people with mental illness are incompetent. It is a stereotype because it's an untrue representation of that group. But there's another, there's a couple other damaging stereotypes. One is dangerousness and another is what's called onset versus offset control. We tend to believe that people with mental illness for some reason or somehow are responsible for their onset of their condition. Mm. So they didn't do something that they should have been doing, they weren't practicing good self-care, and so forth. But then also, we tend to believe that they're not responsible for offset, meaning they don't have control over their own recovery. So these stereotypes give rise for many people to prejudices, which Mm -hmm. are, are emotional responses to the stereotypes. So if we think someone or something is dangerous, Mm -hmm. we tend to fear it. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we think someone or something is incompetent, I guess someone is incompetent, we tend to not trust them with our care, Right. right? So if it was a doctor. And then the final construct in this process is discrimination. So if we are fearful of something because we believe that it is dangerous, We tend to avoid it. And Mm -hmm. the same goes for human beings in our lives. If we identify someone as living with a mental illness and we buy into this stereotype of dangerousness, we're going to tend to avoid them. Mm. And in an employment setting, that could be not hiring somebody with a mental illness. In a medical setting, that could be not trusting our colleagues that have identified as living with a mental illness or not trusting our providers. So I think that's a big part of what's going on when we're talking about um, healthcare providers avoiding care. It's uh, it, it it definitely um, it makes sense. I mean, I, in terms of why people or healthcare, my colleagues wouldn't come forth. And so, uh, when if just for clarification, so I think you said there were three categories. Could you? So it's stereotypes, and then could you mention the other two again? Yeah. So stereotypes are the cognitions right. that give rise to the second, which is prejudice or I the see. emotional Got reaction. It. And then the third is discrimination, okay. and that's our behavioral response. I'm, I'm guessing, you know, probably for all professions, this is an issue. The stigma piece is an issue. Um, obviously, if you want to entrust your life to a professional, like a physician, then, you know, this becomes even more, it's, it's sort of your, as you mentioned, your prejudice and the discriminations and then your risk tolerance to taking those quote unquote chances due to your beliefs. I'm guessing other occupations might be, I was just on an airplane this weekend, would be a pilot, and and there are probably many others. I'm, I'm curious, uh, are these, so we've done some podcasts where we look at organizations outside of healthcare to look for solutions. Are some of these other professions like, you know, commercial airline or, I don't know, nuclear power or the military, like, have they figured this out and um, better, doing better than healthcare providers are? 
Well, I think that's a really fascinating way of problem solving, first of all. Um, so I'll connect this kind of together. Mm-hmm. Um, a really good profession that I could parallel with healthcare professionals would be law enforcement. Mm. Um, and the reason I say that is because I think there's stim- similar levels of stigma around treatment seeking. There are similarly mm. elevated rates of psychological distress and of suicide mm-hmm. in that occupation. Um, and then there's also questions that get asked of those folks, both medical providers and law enforcement officers mm-hmm. on s- different exams that they must take in order to either be licensed or right. to you know, carry a weapon, for example. And so part of what has been done in the law enforcement community is this focus on helping law enforcement to understand that there are, tr- there are truly confidential ways that they can seek help. Um, I've done some research with actually medical providers and law enforcement officers around getting them Mm -hmm. into care. And in some of the interviews that we've done, I've heard the same thing from both um, people in both occupations. And that is, I'm not going to seek care because if my employer finds Mm -hmm. out, then I might lose my job. Um, So there's a huge fear around that. So then the solution becomes, how can we get people care? confidentially. Uh, Law enforcement has started to try to work through that. Um, For example, uh, having providers that are outside of Mm -hmm. the law enforcement setting so that they know that they can seek that care genuinely in a private, um, private setting. Now, interestingly, in conversations with law enforcement, I've heard that it is still a challenge to actually convince the law enforcement officers that in fact, that is true, that it is confidential, because there is such fear around it being, you know, disclosed to their employer. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there are starting to be some good options. But because, you know, culture change takes significant time and effort, you know, it will take some time. And and so, you know, before we, you know, I ask you about, you know, other solutions in healthcare, just thinking in terms of culture as well. I, I wonder, you know, so the global pandemic, obviously, you know, based on your statistics, exacerbated this mental health crisis within healthcare professionals. Um, but the pandemic was a global one. And I'm curious, I, I often, you know, sort of reflect back of, uh, you know, I, I'm of Japanese background and I think I have, I was born in Japan, came here when I was young, but I often have sort of dual cultural perspectives, uh, U.S. Yeah. and Japan. And I wonder, I know in Japan, uh, the stigma for mental health is pretty prominent. And mm-hmm. um, I wonder, I don't know where, if there's a scale of, of countries around the world and stig- mental health stigma you know, some places are you know good, and some places are not as great. But how is U.S. is the U.S. culture? You know, you know where is that on the scale, and how how much is culture a part of this issue around stigma? It's an excellent question and a really important one. Um, so it, it's not great news, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, so globally, there are a set of core public prejudices about mental illness. Mm. Um, So this is a global problem, truly. Um, Now, there has been some research that's been done um, internationally where stigma has been examined in different countries. And you are correct that the magnitude at at which um, certain cultures endorse some of those prejudices Mm -hmm. and some of the stereotypes does differ. 
So there are some cultures, for example, that believe that mental illness um, is is an an issue of spirituality, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And that somehow this person is spiritually weak Mm -hmm. if they're experiencing a mental health condition. And that does tend to vary that belief by culture. But we would be mistaken if we assume that the U.S. isn't dealing with some pretty significant um, issues around stigma. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, the research suggests that over time, so over like the last decade, the stigma surrounding depression has largely been unchanged. Mm. So it's remained the same, essentially. Uh, the stigma around disorders like schizophrenia has actually worsened over time. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, there's a variety of different con- contributing factors mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Um but largely, you know, media representations mm. of mental health conditions can be incredibly damaging and probably played a role right, right. In, the, in those statistics. So, you know, that's, that's helpful to get that perspective because, you know, oftentimes, you know, as a physician, you always try to diagnose what the problem is before coming up with the treatment or a solution. And so this area is not an area that I'm familiar with enough more than a lay person. But, you know, we've established that mental health, depression, anxiety, suicide is really um, an increased risk in the physician nursing healthcare population. It's gotten worse through COVID. Um, um, We have uh, frontline providers that are dying because of this. And there are obviously cultural issues. There are societal and probably healthcare barriers. Um, Like you mentioned, also just getting jobs if somebody finds out and or I apply to something, I've, you know, checked the box that says, you know, I've had mental health illness, am I not going to get a job? And so now shifting towards, you know, what can we do to change this? How can we in healthcare overcome this so that we can get the right care for our healthcare workforce, but not necessarily have them be afraid of losing their job or or actually losing their job? And so I was curious if you have ideas or if you've already known that we're starting to implement changes like um, you reference uh, with law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, so what one of the things I think is absolutely critical in order to address this crisis, in, um, this public health crisis, is revisiting the questions that are asked on licensing mm. exams for physicians and for healthcare workers. So there was a study done in 2016 that looked at uh, the initial and renewal medical licensure applications across all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Mm -hmm. Um, And what the researchers did is they looked at these applications and they classified them as either consistent or inconsistent. So consistent meant that the application followed the recommended guidelines put forth by the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, Mm -hmm the Federation of State Medical Boards, and also the Americans with Disabilities Act, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which that act, signed in 1990, um, said that it is uh, illegal to discriminate against people based on disability. Mm -hmm. So the applications in this study that were marked as consistent were those that asked about one's current ability to perform Mm -hmm. their job, that they felt that they were not impaired by Mm -hmm. a mental health condition. Inconsistent applications ask questions like, have you ever received Hmm. mental health treatment? Um, Do you have a life history of a mental illness? Could this possibly impair your ability to do your job? And what they found is 40% of those applications asked the questions in an inconsistent manner. 
And when they surveyed a large number of physicians, um, they found that there was an association between willingness to seek treatment and the questions wow. on that, that particular state's licensing exam. Wow, that's a big deal. It's, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And it is what I've heard consistently from medical providers when I've talked to them about stigma is it's those questions that are so scary. Hmm. Um, and they really communicate a, a larger sentiment, right? right. If, if, if those questions are being asked of folks on their licensing right, exam, right. what does that mean that their administrators think of them right. if they need to seek help, yeah. right? So I think that's a really important, that's a key piece because you can, you can address stigma in all sorts of other ways. And I do think we should be doing so simultaneously. Right. But until those questions are revisited, I think you're going to continue to see people um, blocked in terms of their willingness to be able to get care. That's that's fascinating. I mean, it, it really, the questions, it's kind of like, you know, we talk about the metrics when you get evaluated on something, it shows what the value of the organization is. And so probably equally, the questions coming into an organization is going to set the tone of what the values and the, the culture of that organization is. And so... Uh, I can't believe forty percent. That's a that's a big number. Yeah, that's an excellent way that you phrase that too. It it is an articulation of the organizational values yeah. for sure. And and so then let's say we can solve that problem. Let's say we can figure out we can create some some sort of guidelines or standards that ask the question in the appropriate way. Because not no not every single person you know may pass an entrance to to get a job. It doesn't mean you give it to everybody, right? And so let's say we ask in an appropriate way, we get through the screening, people are willing to answer appropriately. So then what's next? Is is there, and I think you alluded to it earlier, but is, are there places where, you know, healthcare professionals can get help in a safe way um, for anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation? Absolutely. You know, so I think the what's next is... Um, once we've addressed those licensing exam questions, mm -hmm. um, and that's no longer a barrier, well, then if you think about it, it's almost as if maybe healthcare workers are up against the same barriers to accessing care as the general population. Mm. And unfortunately, the general population is also experiencing significant barriers to care. And one of the most formidable mm. is stigma. When you look at the treatment gap, for example, in the general population, meaning the time from when somebody first experiences the onset of their symptoms mm -hmm. until they finally seek care, mm -hmm. it's on average 10 years. And a lot can happen wow. during that 10-year period, worsening symptoms, mm -hmm. risk for suicide increases. And the longer somebody lives with an untreated mental health condition, the more likely they are to develop disability as mm -hmm. a result or mm -hmm. the inability to function in their daily life um, that can result in things like job loss, for example. Um, so there's some strategies that have been shown to work well in the general population mm -hmm. for addressing stigma. One of them uh, that is that has been shown through another meta-analysis of the literature, so looking at all the studies that have ever been done on the topic, mm -hmm. has shown that contact is the most um, effective form of stigma change. And so what I mean by contact is really storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's people living with mental health conditions telling their stories of both the challenges they've experienced with regard to mental illness, but also their recovery journeys and messages of hope. Mm -hmm. uh, because the reality is recovery is actually the rule rather than the exception. Most people, even people with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, 
achieved some level of recovery mm-hmm. across the course of their lifetime. It's not what we believe, though. We believe that once one is living with a mental health condition, that they're somehow in some way, you know, quote unquote, damaged mm-hmm. and in, mm-hmm. incapable of recovery. So these storytelling, contact-based interventions are really key. We actually, I, I work with a, a organization that you mentioned, I believe, in the introduction. This is my brave. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my brave. Um, they happen to do their storytelling and their contact using uh, creative expression. So they put out a casting call and they ask for people living with mental health conditions mm-hmm. to come forward and tell their stories live on stage through creative um, expression, monologue, poetry, song, mm-hmm. stand-up comedy. Um, and uh, so I've done the work, the research, the evaluation for mm-hmm. this group for the past seven years. Mm-hmm. What we found is that for the folks who bear witness to these storytelling sessions, uh, they experience a decreased sense of stigma mm-hmm. and an improved willingness to seek treatment. And then for the cast members, the ones that tell their story live on stage, they have improved self-esteem and self-efficacy um, and, in, and a greater sense of optimism mm. about the future. We just happened to hold um, the first annual production of This Is My Brave, mm-hmm. the college edition, a one USF production here at USF oh, on April great. 22nd. Um, and I wanted to just mention that and share that because uh, one of the storytellers in our production is a USF medical student. Oh, wow. And I just praised her bravery mm-hmm. so much, knowing what heightened levels of stigma there are in her professional community. Uh, and her story was really powerful, mm. but she also prefaced it with a message about the need to be talking about this and the need to be addressing stigma among healthcare providers. Yeah, well, that's that's wonderful. It sounds. Uh, I, I hope it's recorded, or maybe it, I'd love to to hear it. I definitely brave, and I applaud the the medical student for um, uh, being willing to to share her uh, is her her story. Her, yeah, um, which yeah. is which is great. Um, you know, I, I think about. The irony is that we are physicians and I, or, you know, there are different healthcare professionals that, are, that listen to this, but, you know, I, I went through, I, I learned about mental health, um, DSM, all of those things. And yet many years later, um, mental health can be on a spectrum and the 10 years for folks to sort of seek actual help. I wonder if part of that is just not knowing when to seek the help, right? And what, knowing what the mm-hmm. symptoms are that require seeking help. And it, it's, it's very insidious, right? It's like, you know, other illnesses like diabetes, you know, you have, you start developing little symptoms, you don't know, you don't know, but, you know, or heart conditions where, you know, there is a public health campaign to say, well, if you have chest pain or stroke, if you, you know, can't talk and you can't, you need to go right away, but there isn't as much information in the public sector about mental uh, health, mental illness. And I, I wonder, you know, if that's going to change, you know, if that does change, if it's going to help, you know, physicians, nurses, other health providers to recognize in themselves like, oh, maybe this is a point where I need help because we often are told, you know, you have to suck it up. You have to um, have grit. And and so you just think, well, it's just today. And if I just, you know, make it till tomorrow, I'll be okay. It's sort of that wartime mentality. So um, I'm curious about you know, public health messaging and if that's going to change. And if it does, if it's going to improve the uh, diagnosis and treatment as well. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. So one of the other approaches to addressing stigma is actually education. Mm -hmm. And that's really educating the public about the myths and the facts surrounding mental illness. So what what is um, what does a mental illness look like? Mm -hmm. How do you know if you're experiencing clinically significant symptoms, meaning symptoms for which you should really be getting treatment? And so there are a lot of programs that exist that are making efforts to do this. Um, I sit on the board of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Hillsborough County. NAMI is one of the largest grassroots um, advocacy organizations around mental illness, and they have a ton of educational programs meant to help uh, address exactly what you were you were speaking about. But I do think that we can always be doing more. Um, and I think that's one of the things that the medical community is starting to do mm. is uh, work on educating med students, right? Before they're even out right. in their profession right. so that they, when they get there, know what they're seeing when they experience it. Right. Um, I think there needs to be a lot more um, expansion of those sorts of programs and probably mandating curriculum for mm -hmm. medical students mm -hmm. so that they're getting that level of education. Um, now, it's still it's still a challenge sometimes, no matter how educated you are on a topic, to right. see it in yourself, of yes, right? For sure. um, <laughs> So one of the things that one of the um, research projects that I've worked on recently with a colleague in um, social work here at USF, Dr. Mm -hmm. Jerome Gallia, mm -hmm. um, this project came out it came out of COVID. Really, mm -hmm. um, you may have been familiar with the Pandemic Research Response Network that USF developed. Mm -hmm in order to mitigate the impact of COVID-19. Um, so the PRRN put out these seed funding mm -hmm, grants mm -hmm. for faculty to apply for, for any research that would help mitigate the impact of COVID-19. And my colleague, Dr. Gallia, and I got together. And actually, it was in response to the, a, a few high-profile physician suicides mm. that we said, we have to do something about this. So we started talking with groups of stakeholders, community partners, including like the Crisis Center for Tampa Bay, mm -hmm. who fields all of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline calls. And we asked them, what should we do? And they said, well, first, do not develop a new intervention. Hmm. We have enough interventions. What we have trouble with is getting people to use them, hmm. getting people to know they exist, getting people to recognize that they're struggling. So what we did is we worked with this group of community advisors and we developed uh, a prototype of a chat bot. Mm. Um, a chat bot is a piece of technology. Ours operated using SMS, so text messaging. Right. And what this chat bot was designed to do was to screen people for psychological distress using common you know, um, screening tools mm -hmm. like the PHQ-9. And then to refer them for uh, support but the key was it was based on, number one, their level of distress, and mm -hmm. number two, their preferences. So there could be some healthcare providers who are pretty distressed. They may not be suicidal, mm -hmm. so crisis care isn't required at this mm -hmm. moment. But they're pretty distressed, and they could benefit from care. Unfortunately, due to all the stigma surrounding mental illness, they're not ready for that mm -hmm. yet. We need to meet them where they're at, and we need to get them something. Something is better than nothing at right, all. Right. So uh, the chatbot can refer them to help, uh, mm -hmm. self-help resources, peer support, which is another thing I think is so important for medical professionals, right. um, is this idea of getting support from somebody else who's been there or who's for currently sure. going through what you're going through. Um, and so, you know, I think this is just one way to get also to just so this is bringing it back to your question about um, education right 
one of the things I think is so promising about this technology is it provides a really easy means for us to get information out Mm -hmm. to people. Um, And that could be information about symptoms or it could be information about stigma. Um, You know, lastly, I'll wrap up on that point by just saying we did a a large um, feasibility study Mm -hmm. in, in a larger sample. And what was so fascinating to me was that the single most significant predictor of willingness to use this chatbot mm-hmm. was label avoidance. So the more avoidant people were of the label around mental illness, the more they didn't want to seek care because of stigma, the more likely they were that they would say, yes, I'll use this chatbot. Hmm. So to me as a stigma researcher, that was just so incredible right. because this is a way to circumnavigate right. stigma. Right. Yeah. I, I'm curious uh, where, if, if somebody's listening and it's like, I, I need some help, but not you know, ready to go to the crisis line, where do I find this chat bot or where, where can I find more information about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have a page on the star lab website. My research lab is the stigma action research lab that we could probably connect folks to. Um, if you Google CBCS star lab, that's the college of behavioral and community sciences. Mm -hmm. Star lab is in, you know, a star in the sky and then lab, um, it would bring you to that page. And, um, if I'm not mistaken, there's currently a QR code on there that one can scan and actually use the chatbot. Okay. And I will say, I want to make it clear to listeners that we're in the development mm. phases of this right now. Um, and so the goal is to now pursue you know, more funding to actually bring this live so it can benefit the lives of the healthcare providers and the law enforcement officers. That's that really great. If, if there yeah. are, and, and maybe we'll you know, we'll, I'll ask this a little bit later in terms of actual resources, you know, for, again, you know, when we talk about a topic such as depression, anxiety, and suicide, you know, it it can be triggering. And I, I just want to make sure that, you know, if somebody's listening and they need help or wants, they want to seek help, you know, there's a place to do that. So, uh, you know, if you have a suggestion now, or you can tell me a little bit later, um, but I just want to be able to point somebody to something if they were listening and and wanted some resources. Well, one thing that I think is a really fantastic idea, and I actually do this with all of the students in my classes now, um, it was never, not my original idea. Somebody else shared it with me mm-hmm. and I thought it was incredible, is you know, take out your cell phone right now, start a new contact, and put in your phone National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Mm. And the number for that line is 1-800-273-8255. So that's 1-800-273-8255. There's been a couple of times when I've been working with a student who was really, really distressed, and I've asked them if they were thinking of hurting themselves. Um, and they, 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 you know, acknowledged that they were, mm-hmm. and we sat and they called, um, in those moments, sometimes we don't have them. Like I just had to pull my cell right, phone out sure. to give that to you. Cause it's yeah. not ingrained in my memory. Um, but that's a really easy strategy. Just save it as a contact yeah. in case you need it. That's great. It, either for yourself or for a friend. So I think that's, that's really mm-hmm. wonderful. So thank you for providing yeah. that. Just a couple, um, last, uh, questions. Um, you know, this area of stigma research is really, it's so important and, um, uh, really fascinating. I could ask you many, many more questions, but uh, I was just curious what drew you to this field. I mean, what was what 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 why did you feel that this is an area that you want to you know dedicate part of your life to doing research on? 
Yeah. So it, it's a combination of clinical and personal experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, in, when I was an undergraduate, I became what's called a mental health technician mm-hmm. um, at a local inpatient psychiatric center. This was in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I went to school at Penn State for undergrad. And I was working there for, I think, about two years while in undergraduate, um, You know, doing things like taking patients' vitals, helping mm-hmm. with medication distributions, running some like process groups. And I just remember seeing instances of what I thought wasn't correct treatment Hmm. of human beings, you know, just like not respecting rights, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, having little empathy for their, you know, their struggles. And so that was always just something that weighed on me. And then I had a loved one that actually experienced a hospitalization Mm -hmm. in that center. And for me, that really made it a completely different situation. Mm -hmm. You know, now it was somebody that I deeply loved who was receiving care Mm -hmm. there. So that really lit a fire in me. Um, I then spent a while working with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Mm -hmm. And I saw Mm -hmm. back then I didn't have a name to call it. I didn't know it was stigma. I just knew it wasn't right what I was seeing. Um, And then after going and getting my master's degree in rehabilitation counseling, Mm -hmm. I, um, I graduated with a master's and was offered a position working, um, managing a National Institute on Mental Health uh, Center mm-hmm. grant at mm-hmm. the Illinois Institute of Technology under Patrick Corrigan, my, my, who turned out to become my doctoral mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is one of, you know, a leading researcher in the area of stigma and mental illness. Wow. Um, so he continued to encourage me on that path. Um, and, you know, I would just conclude by saying, Across my own lifespan, um, I've struggled with depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. I've fortunately not found stigma to be too much of a barrier for me, and I have gotten care. But it's it was enough of an experience to know that these symptoms mm-hmm. of mental health conditions are very, very real. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't imagine not getting help when feeling that way. So I think really just this desire to make sure that anybody who's experiencing a mental health condition can get the help that they need and deserve in order to live the life that they want to live is what drives me in this work. That's that's a wonderful uh, story. And uh, it it makes sense why you're so passionate about this. And I I do really appreciate um, you doing this really important research. Um, So I I have a final question. And we've asked this to many of our guests. across our podcast podcast series. So if a leader of an organization, whether it's a head of a clinic or hospital or a head of a university, um, uh, they want to make wellness, mental health, well-being a priority for their organization. Um, you know, we're talking healthcare right now, so that let's say their healthcare workforce. What's mm-hmm. the first step that that leader um, should take to eliminate or at least reduce the amount of structural stigma um, that exists within their organization around mental health and depression, suicide? Yeah. Uh, so I think this goes back to our earlier conversation around um, you know, those licensing exam questions and how that's articulating mm-hmm. a culture mm-hmm. um, within an organization or within a profession in this case. So I think similarly, I mean, those licensing exam questions are prime examples of structural stigma. So within organizations, I think leadership needs to be examining all policies and procedures Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to make sure that there is no, you know, hidden 
message being articulated mm-hmm. to the workforce. This seeps into all areas of, of organizational culture. Yeah. Uh, and so, and you know, also talk to the folks that you work with, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. get their, get their feedback and their opinions on what would it be helpful to them in reducing stigma as a barrier to treatment. Um, I really do believe that, you know, messages like it's okay to seek treatment and we support your mental wellness Mm -hmm. have to not only just come from the highest level of the organization and filter all the way through, but they have to be clear and expressed very loudly so that there's no question among um, members of the organization that that it's actually genuine. Yeah, yeah. And then if there is uh, somebody brave and willing on the leadership team to share their story, right, through storytelling, that's probably probably the most effective way of demonstrating that the organization supports that from a cultural standpoint. So glad you just said that. And I think there have been some examples in healthcare of folks in you know, high up leadership positions that have done that. Um, And I've always been so ecstatic to see that because I I agree. Yes, that is an absolutely the the way to send that message. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much uh, for being with us, Dr. Kasilik. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Okuda. Thank you for having me. Our guest has been Dr. Kristen Kasilik, Assistant Professor in the Department of Mental Health, Law and Policy and Faculty Affiliate with the Louis de la Parte Mental Health Institute at the University of South Florida. If there's a particular topic you'd like to hear more about here on Healthcare Super Teams, let us know. Our email is ipep at usf.edu, ipep at usf.edu. Until next time, I'm Haru Okuda. Thank you for joining us on Healthcare Super Teams.